You can go ahead and turn again to Galatians chapter 1 while I get settled here. And remember our theme uh, both this morning and this afternoon is the utmost importance of the gospel. The utmost importance of the gospel. That's the one thing I want you to leave understanding perhaps a little bit better or at least contemplating it a little bit more than you otherwise would have when you came in this morning. Um, if you remember, we're on Galatians one chapter, uh, Galatians chapter one, verses six through nine. I'll go ahead and just read once again verses six through nine. Paul says, "I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you." And want to distort the gospel of Christ. So that's as far as we got in the last hour. This next hour we're taking up verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll skip reviewing anything from the last hour and get right into it. Um, this is the fourth and final point of the two-part sermon here, and that is that Paul shows us in this letter that the gospel is of utmost importance by what we should do with those who preach a false gospel. And so a shortened heading would be what to do with the opposition. And this is found in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. What's Paul doing here? He's setting up a hypothetical situation. And then he tells the Galatians, if you ever find yourself in this hypothetical situation, this is what you need to do. So let's look at the details of what Paul is giving in this hypothetical. There are certain actors involved. There's a message preached in this hypothetical situation. And then finally, there's instruction in the hypothetical. So we're going to look at the actors, the message, and then the instruction. So first, the actors. Paul is setting before the Galatians two groups of actors. He says, we and angels from heaven. The first group, we, is the one that is most unlikely to come against his arguments, Paul and those with him. The second group is the most credible, imaginable herald of the gospel, angels from the very throne room of God. What Paul is saying in these two verses is that it is the message and not the messenger that is important when it comes to the gospel. And so first, let's look at this pronoun, we. The first group is designated by this plural pronoun, we. And I do apologize, This, there are some details here, and it's unfortunate that I have to come at you with the details here right in the first part of the afternoon service. So please, if you, uh, uh, please be aware of it and just do your best to pay attention here. Um, if you remember from the first Sunday we looked at Galatians, 
This is a rare occurrence in Galatians, this first-person plural pronoun in the letter. And I use that fact to argue that this letter was written by Paul alone and not by Paul and the group of people who were with him. So the we here, there's some ambiguity here. It may refer to Paul and those who are with him in Galatians, in Galatians 1, verse 2. Some commentators think that the we here actually only refers to Paul himself. And there's some kind of literary device going on here. Uh, I, I don't understand that argument. I'm not discounting it. Um, but there's some kind of literary device in the Greek going on here, and the we is actually Paul referring to himself as a plural pronoun. What I don't think is happening here is Paul is not identifying himself with his audience. This can happen in preaching. Haven't you heard a preacher say things like, now we can see this or that. Now let us look at this or that text of scripture. Um, as a matter of fact, Paul does this himself. Uh, turn to Romans 6. Paul uses the first person plural pronoun we, and he's identifying himself with his audience. Starts right out there. I'll just read the first four verses. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul is using we in that sense, identifying himself with the Romans that he's writing to. Um, another uh, well-known example is found in Isaiah um, 118, where it says, come, let us reason together. Now, what's important to understand? We need to understand the force of the hypothetical that Paul is setting up. He is setting up an extreme hypothetical situation that they will probably never, ever see. And he tells them what to do about that hypothetical so that they know with greater degree of certainty what to do when a less extreme and more likely scenario comes upon them. They anathematize the heretic. Certainly, if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, if you pronounce anathemas on that angel from heaven, does that leave any question on what you're supposed to do with the Judaizers who pro proclaim a different gospel? You see the force of his hypothetical here. So what's important here is that Paul is including himself in the we. So what he's saying is, even if I myself come and preach to you a different gospel, I'm the guy least likely to argue against myself. But if I come and preach to you another gospel, then let curses fall upon my head. I think he's also showing here that he's not interested in defending his gospel to save face. He's not personally offended that the Galatians are straying from what he personally gave them. His concern is for the gospel itself. It's not like he has, it's not like he's marked his territory in Galatia and some competing preachers have come and they're taking away his territory. No, he has a heart for these people because he wants them in heaven. He wants them to know Christ 
and he wants them to hold fast to that gospel truth that he gave them. And so he says, this is not about me, because even if I came and proclaimed to you another gospel, you let those anathemas fall on my head. The second group is angels from heaven. That word angel just means messenger. The word apostle can also just mean messenger. But when Paul uses the word here, he is referring to supernatural beings in the heavenly realm. This is the customary usage of that term in the New Testament, and the meaning is clear um, in the translation that we have right before us. These messengers are from heaven. Paul is pushing the extremity of his hypothetical by including the most credible source of preaching that the Galatians might imagine. Angels from heaven. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's set the scene on where these angels are coming from. I am forever grateful for the songs of the Bible, the names of the the books of the Bible song I heard in VBS as a kid. That's still how I find books of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm hearing the song in my head. It's headed here in my copy of the scriptures, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In this scene, we have Isaiah, the Lord on his throne, and angels worshiping the Lord. Reading on in verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And at this scene, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne. He sees the holy angels in heaven around that throne, worshiping the Lord his God. And that's his response there in verse 5. And I, that is just Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw something too holy for him to bear. Consider Moses, who came down from the mount as he communed with God for those 40 days. Remember, his face shone like the sun, and he had to cover it with a veil because the people were afraid. How much more would we be afraid if an angel came from that place that we read of in Isaiah chapter 6? An angel who was just singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord himself. Maybe the angel is still glowing with the glory of God from coming from the throne room. 
if that kind of a preacher comes, shining with the glory of God, and preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. You see how serious the gospel is. You see how the message and not the messenger is what matters. Now, what is the message in this hypothetical? What are these hypothetical heralds of the gospel bringing? The text says in verse 8, they're bringing a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. And in verse 9, it says they're bringing a gospel contrary to the one you received. The word translated as contrary is a preposition. It just means other or another in Greek. Most reputable English translations translate this as contrary, but in your New King James Version, or or maybe the King James Version, it says just another. What we need to take from Paul's word here is that it is a gospel that is different from the one true gospel. Anyone preaching a gospel different from the one that was already proclaimed, the one which Paul will in time in this letter argue that was the one that he received from direct revelation of God, Anyone that preaches a a gospel different from that, a gospel contrary to the one true gospel, they ought to be anathematized. So note, he's giving them a general rule here. He's not addressing the specific issue of circumcision. He doesn't say, if anyone preaches to you a gospel that says you need to be circumcised to be saved, let him be anathema. He says, no, no. If anyone brings to you a gospel even a little different Like this, yes, our issue at hand deals with this, but if anyone brings to you a gospel different in any way, let them be anathema. And I don't care if it's me or an angel from the very throne room of God. Paul tells them, even in this situation, which you will probably never ever face, you are to anathematize them. In the ESV, it says accursed. To be accursed just means to be under a curse, to be doomed, to be damnable. The word, for example, is used, and I'm turning there, to, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 3. It says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. That's the same word, anathema. This is a strong reaction. The strongest reaction that you can give. Paul doesn't say if an angel from heaven should come to you and preach a different gospel, go ahead and entertain their ideas, but... Just don't listen to them. Don't believe them. He doesn't say, you know, we we need to be tolerant of other views, of other worldviews and other ideas. And so go ahead and let them speak. Just don't spread those ideas. He doesn't even say, you know what, just be passive. Don't have anything to do with them. Walk away. He doesn't even say you need to cast them out of your assemblies. He says... 
Let them be cursed by God. Let them be anathema. Paul sets up an extreme example that the Galatians will never experience to show them that there is absolutely no conditions that could possibly ever exist, ever, ever, no, never, where they might ever entertain another gospel, even if it's only slightly different from the one true gospel, even in the minutest of details. Hold fast to the one true gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven declaring it to you. So the Galatians reading this, there should be no question about, well, what do we do about these Judaizers? They're much less than an angel from heaven, and they're declaring to us a gospel contrary to the one we received, as Paul will detail in his letter. So what do we do with them? Well, obviously, we anathematize them. We don't entertain what they have to say, and we don't need to feel sorry for them. They need to be anathematized because they are bringing poison into the church. And so in this fourth and final point, we see that the gospel is of utmost importance in how we are to respond to those who might offer up a contrary gospel. If the gospel was not so important, why would Paul say to be so harsh to those who offer us a different gospel? I just have some points of application and then we can close. In the first place, guard the gospel. We must guard and promote the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many ways we can do this, I'm sure, but one way that we need to do it as individuals is that we need to store it up in our heart. We need to understand all the points of the gospel and all the points of related theology that relate to the gospel as best as we can. We need to continue to familiarize ourselves with the word of God. We need to be able to explain it. We need to be able to defend it. It's commanded in the scriptures to be able to defend the hope that is in us. What is the hope that is in us if it's not the message of hope of the Lord Jesus Christ? If it's important to us, we need to pay attention to it. Is your bank account important to you? You don't want to bounce checks, right? You don't want to charge things and overspend your money, and so you check your bank account often because it's important. We ought to check our copies of the Word of God often because the gospel's important. There's too much at stake to handle the gospel carelessly or take it for granted. Support those who are heralds of the gospel. Please pray for our pastor. Preaching is not easy. It is the burden of every uh, it is the burden of every faithful preacher to bring a message that explains the word of God in a way that people can understand it and to tell them what it means for them. That is a burden and it is hard to do. And our pastor needs our prayers. Pray for him as he brings us the word of God week by week. We need to be diligent in bringing up our children by the gospel day by day as we have them in our homes. I'm told that it gets harder once they're out of your home to have the same kind of influence that we have on them while they're in the home. We need to be diligent in praying for them 
we need to pray for those that we love that don't know the gospel. Because if they don't have it, we know where they'll be. Do we really believe the gospel if we're so, uh, what's the word, uh, lazy in our prayers for people who don't yet know the gospel? We need to hold the gospel as precious. It is precious. It is worth fighting for. And we need to have it in our hearts. In the second place, note the gospel's antiquity. We see the antiquity of the full and true establishment of the gospel. It goes all the way back to the apostolic age here. It goes before that, but we see at least in this letter that Paul is settled enough in what the gospel is that he's telling the Galatians, if you hear anything even slightly different than this, that's not the gospel. There's not elements of the gospel that are going to be revealed at some later point in time. Just bear with me. You'll hear why I'm, why I'm saying this. There are religions who have popped up since that day that claim to bring a newly completed gospel for our benefit. Islam and Mormonism are two very well-known examples. But these cannot be true. Because while Paul, an apostle, was still alive more than 2,000 years ago, he made exclusive claims that the gospel that he was preaching way back then was the only true gospel. It's settled. We only need to look to God's word, and we don't need to look at religions that have cropped up since then. So let me emphasize again that the gospel is of utmost importance. We have seen this in Paul's omission of his usual section of prayers and thanksgivings in his letter. He rushes his introduction, if you recall, and he gets right to the body of his letter saying, I am astonished. And the fact that he skips over that commonly used section on prayers and thanksgivings, it shows us that the gospel is important. We've seen that because Paul is so shocked and astonished in his reaction to the Galatian Christians so quickly deserting God in their entertainment of this false gospel, that the gospel is of utmost importance. We have seen this in how Paul describes those causing these issues in the Galatian churches. They are troublers who distort, who twist the gospel. We see that the gospel is of utmost importance. And finally, we have seen this in how Paul tells us to anathematize those who bring any message different from the one true gospel, even if it's different in a small, minute detail. Brethren, the gospel is important, and we need to treat it as such, and we need to live our lives as such. There is no other gospel that has the power to save. There's, um, I don't know now if I'm, I have four more points of application here, but um, I don't remember if this is in the notes, but it just came to me. Um, the gospel is the only message that has the power to save. And so, you know, there's, there's this gospel that's been around for some time, uh, decisionism, I guess you could call it, where, you know, you sign this or that card and you're saved, you're good. You just make this decision, you declare something, um, and then you're good. The problem with that is it, it puts 
your faith and your hope and your trust in the thing that you did and not in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so later, as you're wondering, any, any Christian here, I'm sure, has struggled with sin. And maybe even to the point where they wonder, you know what, am I really even saved? And what's the thing that gives you comfort? If, it's, if the thing that gives you comfort is, you know what, I signed that card, I'm fine. That's not the gospel. The thing that should give you comfort is, Jesus paid it all. I'm safe because his sacrifice was sufficient. Since the gospel is the only message that has the power to save, it is accurate to say that we make a decision when we come to the Lord. But, on the other hand, we make a decision in the same way that somebody on the verge of drowning decides to grab the hand that's pulling them out of the water. That's the only message that will save us. We need it. We desperately grasp for it once we realize that we're sinners. It is of utmost importance. Okay, the the points of application that I have to close. um, Be careful how you respond to gospel heresy. We need to keep the context of this letter in mind. This is not a formula that we just apply to every situation. Paul gives us an example here of how we need to respond to gospel heresy in the church. I am not saying that you should respond to all unbelievers who have unbiblical views about how to be reconciled to God with anathema. So if you have a co-worker at work who says, you know what, I think there's many ways to God. There's Christianity, there's Buddhism, there's all these, all of these religions. They're all basically the same. They just, you know, you just got to be a good person. It's the golden rule, etc. That's how you get to God. You do that stuff and you'll be fine. And you don't go to them and say, anathema. You don't just follow and apply what Paul does here to the Galatian churches, to a situation like that. He's addressing false gospel in the church. But it also doesn't mean that we have a license to pronounce anathemas now on our fellow church members who may have differing points of view on finer points of doctrine. Nor does it give us a right to treat our brothers and sisters in the church as second-class citizens in the kingdom if they have a differing point of view on some specific point of doctrine. We are not to have this attitude of, well, you know, once this or that person is more mature, they'll, they'll agree with me once they're more mature. It may be that you are the immature one. So we need to show one another grace in these matters and have the maturity and the humility to recognize when an issue is not a core gospel issue. But when it is, we know what to do. Second point of application, we need to be on our guard because heresy can be a process. Just because the Galatians were falling into this heresy quickly, it doesn't mean that heresy always happens quickly. Doctrinal error, even getting to the level of heresy, can be a long process happening in small, incremental, hardly visible steps. And so we need to be on our guard. And it keeps going back to the same thing of taking advantage of the means of grace, 
Always be found in the Word of God. Always be found in prayer. Always be found in church. Take every opportunity of the means of grace to guard yourself from error. I think doctrinal error can also be a matter of pride. Let me explain that. Sometimes people can come to certain erroneous theological understandings and they own that doctrine like it's theirs, like they invented it or something like that. And so when you try to correct them, it's not perceived as someone trying to help another better understand the scripture. It's a personal attack. And, you know, if you've spoken with Arminians, for example, you can get some of this. There's this hatred and there's this hatred for Calvinistic doctrine, for the doctrines of grace, for the gospel, even among those who claim the name of Christ. Some of such people treat their doctrine, their understanding of how we come to know the Lord like they would a sports team. Well, don't you dare insult my favorite football team. They're the best. We aren't to treat doctrine that way. Theological truth is not ours. It is true because God has said it's true. And we need to not be so caught up in saving face or being right that we stubbornly hold on to theology that is an error. Number three, the urgency that Paul brings to the gospel implies that man has a great need for it. Even if everything I've said so far about the gospel were still true, but if man didn't really need it, then Paul wouldn't have been so urgent in his call to the Galatians. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All mankind alike has fallen. We are all sinners, and we all need a Savior. And that Savior is found as expressed in the one true gospel message, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all alike condemned where we stand without him. As Paul says in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And what are the consequences of that? Well, he says that later, the wages of sin is death. So if you are a human being, you need Christ. That's why the gospel is important for us. We need it, like we need breath and life and being. So the obvious fourth and final point of application is what are you going to do about all that? If there's one gospel, and if there's none other gospel that can save you, it follows that you must believe this gospel. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's objectively true. You are a sinner in the hands of a wrathful God who owns you as your creator. You have sinned against his holy law. And as a result, you are culpable to all the miseries that we experience in life, to death, and to the wrath of God forever. You need a savior. But the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a savior in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived and didn't sin even once. 
he fulfilled the law of God. So he's got no sins of his own to pay for. But he died anyway, and he bared the wrath of God on the cross on the behalf of sinners. His sacrifice was for his people and is sufficient for every single sin. There is no sin ever committed that the blood of Christ cannot cover. You only need to look to him and be saved. And you might ask, if you've not heard this language a lot, well, what does it mean to look to him? I don't mean you look at a picture of him. I mean that you look to him as your only hope. He is the only one who can save you. And you make him your savior by repenting of your sins. And what does that mean? Well, you have to feel bad for your sins. You have to confess them and own them as yours. And then you turn from them. That means you stop doing them. You don't continue living your life as you did before. And you learn to, as we Christians like to say it, live and walk in newness of life. And that means that you live differently. You don't do the things that the world does. You don't go out and party. You don't go out and get drunk. You live to walk in newness of life. You delight to follow the law of God. The the Ten Commandments that we read in the Bible, you will learn to love those. You will delight in the law of God. And it's not going to be a burden to you. It will be a pleasure to follow God's law. But it starts with you recognizing that you're a sinner, owning it and repenting of your sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you believe all the things that the Bible says are true about him. You believe all the things that the Bible says about the gospel and you put all your hope and your trust in him. That's what we mean by look to Christ. When you're anxious and you're wondering, where am I going when I die? You look to Christ. I'm safe. And the Bible says that you will have peace with God even now. That's not something you have to wait for until you die. Even now, we have peace with God. And so please uh, forgive the preacher who can't use words quite the way he would like to. Just hear the message that you need Christ and you need to repent and believe on him and you will be saved and you will not regret it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you that we can issue a call for the gospel to every single person on the earth. We need to make no distinctions. We need to not wonder if they'll respond or not. And we thank you, Lord, that when the gospel is presented, it doesn't depend on the wittiness of the person presenting it. I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful, Lord, that every one of your sheep will hear your voice, and we just need to be faithful in proclaiming that gospel. Help this place to never, ever be a place where heresy creeps in and distorts the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is life to sinners. We must guard it. I pray you'd be with our church leaders as they they bear a heavy load in ensuring that, that we never fall into error in such ways. Help us to stand against the evil one, Lord, for we know that uh, we're not fighting against things that we can see in this world. There are unseen powers and forces that would seek to devour us. Help us to recognize that and to lean upon you. We need your power and your grace to do this. Help us to do that. 
And Lord, we pray for those who may have heard this message and do not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless it. Bless it in ways that we can't and we wish that we could. We can't change a sinner's heart. Only you can. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless the message and that sinners would come to repentance and faith, to the glory of God and to the good of your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.